I'm done. Let's have the band come down and do the invitation. How do you top that? Wow. Merry Christmas. I hope uh, you'll make plans to come back tonight. We're not here, though. Don't come to the theater. You'll end up in The Hobbit or something. I don't know. Go to Darting Prairie City Hall. It's like a half mile from here. It's just past the Catholic Church. And I hope you're bringing somebody with you as we continue to celebrate the Lord's presence with us. One other thing before we get into the message this morning, I just encourage you to do, go check out our website. It's same address, connectionchristian.org, but it's been revamped. I think you'll find it helpful. There's a calendar feature. You can download messages if you miss a Sunday. So all kinds of stuff you can do there. Well, there's a family that went to their summer lake home for vacation one year, and uh, they're kind of just gathered around. Dad was in the boathouse, and he had left his 12-year-old son in charge of their 3-year-old son, his little brother, Billy. And you know how that works, yeah? So Dad's puttering around in the boathouse. Billy, the 3-year-old, and his 12-year-old brother are on the dock. 12-year-old's supposed to be watching the 3-year-old. He's not. Billy made it all the way to the end of the dock because there was a shiny aluminum boat that he wanted to check out. He got all the way to the end of the dock without anybody knowing. He got one foot into the boat and one foot on the dock when he lost his balance, fell backward into the deep lake water. As soon as the splash happened, the 12-year-old looked up, knew what happened. He shrieked. His dad in the boathouse immediately knew what had happened. He sprinted out, saw the ripples going out at the end of the dock. He sprinted to the end of the dock, dove into the murky lake water, and swam around trying to find his three-year-old son desperately. At this point, if you want to hold your breath, you can. Maybe you say, I already am. So he, he couldn't find his son. He came back up to the surface of the water, gasped in another breath of air, went all the way to the bottom of the lake, and felt around the, the dock pilings trying to find his son desperately. His lungs were exploding. He couldn't take it anymore. He shot toward the surface of the water again to get air, and on the way to the top, he bumped into his son. His son was about four feet under the water, clinging to one of the legs of the dock. Dad pried his fingers loose. They shot to the surface and breathed in life-giving air. He saved his son. After the adrenaline had subsided, after the uh, nerves had calmed down a little bit, Dad said to his three-year-old son, Billy, what were you doing down there? And with the wisdom that only a three-year-old possesses, he said, I was waiting for you, Dad. Today on Christmas Eve Eve, we remember that God left the glory and splendor of heaven, a place that's perfect and sinless, and there's no sin there, there's no school shootings there, there's no illness or disease, no one does anything wrong. He left the glory of heaven and he plunged into our dark world on a rescue mission. He came to save people who feel like they're drowning. He came to save people who feel like they're just barely clinging to whatever hope they can. He came in here to save people from the consequences of their own actions. If you feel like that's you today, if you feel like you're in darkness, you need to understand that what Jesus did is he plunged into our world to save us. You know, I I think of what happened just almost two weeks ago in Connecticut, and that's disturbing. I watched the newscasts on that day like everybody else did, and then I just made a conscious decision. I know what happened. I don't need to watch this anymore, and so I have not watched any more news reports. Maybe you ought to do that too. Bad enough to know what happened. And I pray for those people, and I know you do too. But sick stuff like that happens in our world all the time, doesn't it? This world can be such a dark place. And, and honestly, I hear a lot of people asking the question, what is God going to do about this? How is he going to fix this? Why doesn't he seem to care? What is, what's he going to do to stop this? What's he going to do to make this right? And the answer to that question is he's already done something about it. God's answer to how messed up the world is started that first Christmas in, in Bethlehem. And it, his answer concluded with the cross. 33 years later, 
God launched this rescue mission to save us from ourselves, to save people from our sins. And so it's a baby boy. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I know that you are in darkness. I'm going to join you in the mess. I'm going to come be with you. I'm going to join you. I'm going to experience it with you. And ultimately, I'm going to save you from all of this. That's what Jesus says he's going to do. God says, I'm going to keep the promise that I made through the prophet Isaiah long ago when I said a virgin would conceive. Yes, she was a virgin, but yes, she was with child. And she's going to give birth to a boy. And that boy will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm literally going to join you in this so that I can save you from this. See, Christmas and every Christmas that we celebrate is a reminder of a historic event. God literally did become one of us. He joined us. God became one of us. And I think that's what Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to understand as we get into the gospel of Luke today. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, you find out why Luke wrote the gospel because he tells us very explicitly. He says, I'm writing to my friend Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was uh, either a recent Christian convert or he was a man who was considering becoming a Christian. Luke is an intelligent, educated physician who's investigated the claims of Christianity. He writes from the side of being a fan uh, and he is a follower of Jesus. So he says, I've investigated this out, Theophilus. I've gone back and I've done all the research. He went back and he talked to people who were eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. He probably went to Mary and talked to her and interviewed other people who were around when Jesus was born and watched his ministry. And so he writes about this from the perspective of this is an actual real historical event. He names real historical people, places. Uh, He puts things in the timeline so you know exactly when it happened. And as he tells us about the birth of Jesus, he introduces us to all these historical people who are, were around that day. He roots Jesus in historical fact, which is why we read in our text this morning as we start out in Luke chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. This will be up on the screen as well. Luke writes this. He says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's a, we'll just stop right there for a second. Here's a homework assignment for you. Sometime go through Luke, and especially the text we were looking at this morning, and just pick out all the real people, places, events, and times that are mentioned by Luke. He writes with an eye to establishing that this is a historic fact. You've got real people. There are verifiable markers and, and people in this account here. Caesar Augustus, a real person. The census that Caesar conducted, real thing. In fact, there were two censuses that Luke references. Historically speaking, we only know of one of them. The historical records about the other one have been lost and have not been uncovered by archaeological digs yet. But every time somebody tries to say, well, Luke got that wrong, there's usually an archaeological dig somewhere over in Greece or Asia Minor that proves him right. So he says there are two censuses. There probably were. Well, there were. There's no probably in that. He verified. He talks about people like Joseph and Mary. He talks about the census that required everyone to travel. He talks about a baby being born in Bethlehem and being laid in a manger. People in a small town like Bethlehem would have remembered something like that. 
real historical facts. This is what, what he's trying to do is say, this is not once upon a time in the magical land of Israel. There was a special town called Bethlehem and, and two very special people. It's not that. He's saying this is a real, verifiable, historical fact. There were eyewitnesses. You can go and talk to them yourself. I'm going to name names here. And when you go to Bethlehem, in those days it was not uncommon for stables to actually be in caves. And you can go to Bethlehem today and see that. Soon after Jesus was born and after his ministry, it seemed like people started making the pilgrimage to Bethlehem. And people started flocking to one spot that they believed was the spot where Jesus was born. I guess the locals still remembered what had happened 30-some years before. Because everybody seemed to know this is the spot where that baby was born. A couple hundred years later, you go uh, forward in history to when Constantine, the Roman emperor, legalized Christianity. His mom wanted to do something, so she had a church built on the spot where they believed Jesus was born, near that cave or that grotto. Now, that first church uh, collapsed. I think there was an earthquake or something. Several churches have been built on the same spot since. But you can go there today, like seventeen or 1,800 years later, and worship on the spot where we believe Jesus was born. How cool is that? It's a real historical event. Now, we see all of this, and we realize, yes, this was really, it was not something fantasy. It's not like, let's go find out where Spider-Man was born. This is a real thing. But we have to move beyond that. See, we realize that this was a real historical event, but behind it, God was at work. Like we read in Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Just At the right time in history, God became a person. He became one of us. He was with us. Now that's the historical fact. Christianity is rooted in a real, live person. It's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I'm pretty sure that most of you are familiar with it. You've either grown up in church and you've heard this, or you've seen a nativity, or you've watched the Peanuts special where Linus recites Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas special. So you've probably got an awareness of this. But if this is going to be helpful to us, we've got to move past the historical and get into the theological. What does it mean that God became a human being and lived with us for 33 years. What do we do with that? Well, the answer to that is as we continue in Luke. So if you go back to Luke chapter 2, go to verse 8, and we see what happened after Jesus was born and placed in a manger. It says in verse 8, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. This is where we get the implications of what it means that God became one of us. I want to key in on one word that the angel spoke, and he said, a Savior has been born to you. What does it mean that we have a Savior? You know, in the next 48 hours, there's going to be a whole lot of gift-giving going on. Maybe at your house, certainly at my house, a lot of presents given and received. Some of the presents, if you're lucky, you're going to get to eat them. If I'm lucky, I'll get to eat some of my presents. Some of them, you know, your kids are going to play with them until the batteries run out, and then they're going to forget they ever had them. Some of them you're going to wish you had never got. Some of them you're going to re-gift, honest. Some of the things that you receive, I hope, though, they become, like, cherished, and you keep it forever because you just love it. Well, I want to tell you about one gift that you can receive this Christmas that will mean something to you. 
five minutes from now, five months from now, 50 years from now, 500 years from now. It's the gift that God gives when a, a Savior plunged into our dark world and said, I'm going to be with you. See, when God became one of us, it's a historical fact, but there's a reason for that. God became one of us so that he could save us. Very explicit purpose. You know, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph um, took him when he was eight days old. And they went down to the temple in Jerusalem. And they brought him in, and an old prophet named Simeon found them. Somehow, out of all the people in the temple, they found him. He made a beeline for them. He's an old man. And he makes his beeline, and he takes baby Jesus in his arms and his hands, and he says, as he's holding baby Jesus, Lord, I can die now in peace. Take me now. I'm ready to go. Well, why is that? He says in Luke 2.30, he says this. My eyes have seen your salvation, Lord. Somehow he knew as he held baby Jesus that this baby is no ordinary child. This is the one that's going to save us from our sins. Not only sins of Israel, he's going to save everyone. And so when Simeon looks at that baby, he realizes we have a Savior. Well, what is it that Jesus saves us from? You know, I, I think you can probably think about this too, but let me give you a couple of things I believe Jesus came to save us from. One, he came to save us from our sins. That would be something you'd be interested in? I, I think I've talked about this before. How cool it would be to go back in your life and get a do-over? Are there some things in your history you wish you could edit? Some things you wish you had a diff another run at? Maybe you could go back and, and say some things you should have said but didn't or say some thing, not say some things that you did and wish you hadn't or some things you did and you wish you hadn't, you know? Wouldn't you just like another shot at it or at least the sense that what you've done could be forgiven and forgotten? That's exactly what Jesus comes to bring us. Yeah, a, another shot. I was reading this week a couple of letters that kids wrote to Santa Claus, which I got to think about that. How do we know what the kids' letters to Santa said? Isn't that like interfering with the mail system here? But we do, and they're actually kind of funny. One kid, his name was Albert, he wrote this to Santa. Dear Santa, you didn't give me anything good last year. You didn't give me anything good the year before that. You got one more chance. To which I'm thinking, Albert, let's see how threatening Santa works for you. Another kid wrote this. Dear Santa, there's three little boys who live in our house. There's Jeffrey, who's two. There's David, who's four. And there's Norman, who's seven. Jeffrey's good some of the time. David's good some of the time. Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. <laughs> yeah, Santa Claus or no. You know what? None of us are Norman, are we? Are any of you really going to stand with a straight face and tell me or tell God you're good all of the time? Really? I, I think we all know the answer to that. None of us are good all the time. And if you try to pull that off, just remind you what Romans 3 says. There's none who are righteous. No, not one. I mean, you may be able to fool a lot of people, but you cannot fool God. No one is completely righteous in God's sight. That's why we need a Savior who plunges into the world to save us. Bible also says, though, in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you don't live on the spectrum that has an overinflated view of yourself. You live on the side of things that you are just always down on yourself. And you're like, but I know the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you don't know what I've done. You're right. I probably don't know all the things you've done, but I do know what the Bible says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you might be like, yeah, but you know how far I've slid away from God. I have run so far from him. Again, I don't know, but I do know the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may say, well, I'm, you have no idea what I'm into and, and the things I've done. It's just embarrassing. Again, maybe I don't know. 
But I do know that the Bible says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, I think that would be a good thing for all of us to say together right now. Do we have the verse up there on the screen? Let's say that together. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, that's how he looks at you. He's come to save you. There's a Christmas card. It was a long time ago. Maybe you've heard this before. It was so good. It says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. So he sent us a savior. That's exactly what he did. God is with us. And his presence with us means that we can be saved from our sin. But it means something else. It means so many things, but one of the big things that stands out to me is that he can also save us from death. His presence saves us from death. Can I ask you kind of an up-close and personal question? You don't have to say the answer out loud, but I'd like you to think about this. If you were to pass away tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? It's kind of a question I think that maybe shepherds who are out in the field watching their sheep at night think about. When you're watching animals for a living outside, you've got a lot of time on your hands, and you think about stuff. Maybe you wake up at night and you think about stuff too. You ever wonder, you know, am I going to make the cut? Right? Am I good with God? You ever wonder that? If, if I died, would I be okay? Would God and I be fine? You know, if your answer is, I hope so, if your answer is, maybe, if your answer is, well, I want you to know that you can actually walk out of here knowing for sure that your hope is certain and secure in Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder or guess or speculate or fear about that, friend. Let me probe just a little bit further here with you, though, since I'm already up in your business. So if you got to heaven and the Lord were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you tell him? Now, please understand, I'm not saying that's actually how it's going to go down. But I think it's a good question to ask because it reveals what we're putting our trust in. If you were to stand before the Lord and he say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? I heard a, a story, kind of more of a joke. Uh, three guys died at the same time. They all arrived at the gates of heaven at the same time. Again, remember, this is a joke. Don't take theology about heaven out of this joke. But St. Peter is standing there, and they're like waiting their turn to go into heaven. And Peter says to the first guy, why should God let you into his heaven? And the guy said, well, I was an obstetrician for my career. I delivered hundreds of babies in my lifetime. Peter says, sounds good to me. Come on in. Next guy walks up, and Peter says, why should God let you into his heaven? And he said, well, I was a pediatrician, and my motto that I took in my practice through my lifetime were the words of Jesus, where he said, let the little children come to me. And so I did. I care for lots of children in my lifetime. And Peter said, all right, come on in. Third guy stepped up, and Peter said, why should God let you into his heaven? And the man said, well, I managed an HMO for a living. And so through my lifetime, I provided health benefits for all kinds of people. And Peter said, all right, you can come in, but you can only stay for 24 hours. And then you're out of here. Right, that's awful. It's true. It's awful, right? Again, don't take your theology of heaven from this. That's not really how it's going to go down. But it does illustrate something. What is it that if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? What are you going to lead out with? If you're going to lead out with something like this, like, you know, um, I was a really good person. I coached my kid's soccer team. I volunteered at church. I, I, was, I was good to people. I tried to be the best person. I, if that's what you're going to lead off with, you're going to have a really bad day. 
because you're playing in the wrong ballpark. If you are trying to, to make a case that you're going to be good enough to get into heaven, listen, I'll be willing to stipulate that you're an awesome person. I'm willing to stipulate that you're the best person, you know, in the United States who's ever, you're a good person. There's no way you can be good enough to get into heaven. If you're playing in that ballpark, you're always going to lose. Listen, if one sin could destroy the entire universe, which is what happened, Adam and Eve's disobedience ruined the entire universe, what's one sin going to do just in your life? There's no way once you're not batting a thousand to bat a thousand again. If you're playing in the field of I'm going to be good enough to get into heaven, you're not going to make it. But as I've said before, why would you try to earn something that God wants to give you for free? You can't even earn it. Why would you try when God says I want to give you a gift? In Romans 6.23 it says the paycheck for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Savior. So he's willing to give you a gift. Why would you try to earn it when he's just saying here it's yours. Take it. I want to... I, I came here to be with you so that I could defeat death and forgive your sins and, and give you a hope of eternal life with me. And all that can be gone, and it's just a gift here. But what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? What do we do with the presence of Jesus Christ today? I wanted to give you two simple things that every single one of us can do as we walk out of here today. Every single one of us can put this message into action this morning. First of all, let me just encourage you to celebrate the presence of Jesus this year celebrate it this year. Picture it this way. What if you had a wealthy friend and uh, your friend came up to you and he says, this is kind of embarrassing, but I forgot to get you something this Christmas. So he pulls out his checkbook, he writes out a check for you, rips it out. And I hope this will make up for it. And you look at it and you're like, dude, this says $10 million. Yeah, I really feel bad. You make it to the bank as fast as you can. The check does not bounce. Woohoo! You, you, your life has changed, right? So imagine this. I'm talking to you. Maybe I'm trying to get you to introduce me to your wealthy friend. It's like a year later. You're like, hey, how's your wealthy friend doing? And you're like, I don't know. I haven't talked to him since last Christmas. What? Yeah, he really hasn't done much for me lately. Oh, other than giving you $10 million last Christmas, he hasn't done much for you? What would be wrong with that? Come on, nobody. You would be showing your love, your appreciation, your gratitude for the rest of your life, whether he did anything else for you or not. And think about this, the gift of salvation that God offers you is so much more than $10 million. And yet, how many people don't give praise and thanks and glory to God who gives them salvation? Hey, shouldn't we not be celebrating what God has done for us this Christmas? Amen? He's been so good to us. We should celebrate that. And that's partly why we've put the service together tonight. It's an opportunity for you to just come and celebrate the gracious gift God's given and an opportunity for you to invite someone else to come so that they can celebrate the gift that God has given. I hope you're going to be there tonight. It's going to be great. Celebrate is coming. And as we close this out, there's one last thing that I want to encourage all of us to do. If you have not already, receive his gift. Think about what God's done for you and receive it. You know, probably all of us have been going out and buying presents over the last weeks, some of you months. I don't know what's wrong with you. You guys are way too prepared. Some of you are like, I haven't started yet. And that's cool. You still got a day and a half. No pressure. But it's time to start thinking about presents if you haven't already. And over the next couple of days, we're going to be opening presents and giving gifts. And I think about this. God gave us a wonderful gift in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He, he wrapped his gift in swaddling cloths. His gift was laid in a manger. His gift was announced by angels. It's a wonderful gift that God has given us, the Savior of the world. And God offers the gift, 
And he says to the shepherds, a Savior's been given. Now it's up to us to receive the gift and to open the present. You know, maybe, maybe for Christmas you've got something really special for somebody. I hope you did. And, and just imagine this. What if you gave that special gift to that special someone and they were like, huh, and set it aside. They didn't even unwrap it. You're like, aren't you going to open the present? Eh, I'm kind of busy right now. So time goes on, and like a few days later, you call them, hey, have you opened the present I got you yet? Nah, I just really haven't got around to it. I'll get to it eventually. Wouldn't that not do something to your friendship? What, you know, weeks goes into months, goes into years, and your friend just neglects this wonderful present that you've given them. And yet, honestly, how many times Christmas after Christmas comes and goes, and God's given this gracious gift, and it remains unwrapped by so many people? Today's the day to unwrap the gift. See, the Bible says in John 1, for everyone who receives that gift of Jesus, for everyone who will believe in him, God's given them the right to become sons of God, sons and daughters, children of God. What an amazing thing is that, that God is willing to adopt us into his family. He's willing to give us this gracious gift. You know how you receive that gift? It's so simple. You put your trust in that Jesus who was born and who died and who rose again. You, you put your faith in him and you express that faith through obedience. You repent of your sins. You confess Christ as Lord. You are immersed in water through baptism. You receive the gift that he's given you. You embrace the eternal life that he's calling you to. You know, just like a drowning little boy who's waiting for his dad, I just wonder how many people are here this morning just waiting, waiting to be rescued from whatever it is that's holding you down. Maybe you feel like you're just drowning in troubles or, or sin or just worry and your future and, and just anxiety about it all. Some of you have been waiting for him, haven't you? i got to believe that God brings people to our church service every week because he wants to meet with you, and he's got something he wants to offer you. How about letting him pry your fingers loose and just saying, yes, here, I want to receive the gift. You know, hey, it's your call. It's entirely in your, your ball court in your field to decide what you're going to do. But how about saying yes to God and embracing the life he's calling you to this morning? How about you open that present? Would you stand with me? And let's pray about that right now. Father, thank you for giving us the gracious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. A lamb, as the Bible describes him, without blemish or defect. He's perfect in every way. He never sinned. He never did anyone wrong. He never hurt anyone, and yet we treated him like he did. Sinful people crucified him on a cross, treated him like nothing. I mean, you came to be with us, and we didn't recognize it. We didn't accept you. But, Father, I'm thankful that everybody who does accept you is invited to be adopted into your family. That is awesome and amazing, and I can't stop thanking you for that. Father, this morning, please help us to say yes to that. Help us to walk into that if we never have before, and if we are there, help us never to be ungracious about it thank you that you love us help us to be a church that is accepting and loving the same way you are and i pray all this in jesus name amen